Passepartout? Yes, sir. I am from a very ancient family, sir. Obviously. You had a rather speckled career, I see. Professor of gymnastics? Yes, sir. Wash. No demonstrations, please. Trapeze artist, fireman, chimney sweep. Amazing. How did you come to England? In a closed basket, sir. I escaped. From what? Women, sir. A ladies' man, huh? Well, there are no women in this household. Now, my conditions are strict, and my timetable never varies. Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Raslin. I'm David Daw. And this week, we've watched the third of the 1956 nominees, and the second longest... <laughs> Around the World in 80 Days, which was also the winner, um, and is so racist that it tips over into something that I find actually to be sort of hilarious, and this is a very personal aesthetic, <laughs> but the early Victorian English racism where they are so afraid of anyone non-white that they view all of their customs as threatening to a point that makes the English look naive and really ignorant. Yeah. <laughs> will never not be funny to me. <laughs> and like, I think the best parts of this movie, which make up about 20 minutes of this three hour film are the parts where that seems to be actually played for comedy. Right. Where it's not accidental. See, the thing is for me, even when it's accidental, I find it funny. I mean, I also find it offensive. I'm like, I can't believe that they thought this about people. The gold standard for this for me is the first English translation of A Thousand and One Nights or The Arabian Nights because all of the end notes are this Victorian English guy talking about things that people that he met in different parts of the Middle East and India told him were like legitimate cultural things that as a person who is actually Middle Eastern, I realized people were trolling him. And he was like, oh, yes, they absolutely believe this. And it's like, nah, dude, it's just in a fairy tale. There is no basis for that in the culture. Yeah. <laughs> and then he was like, oh, yes, I totally believe that from these strange foreign people. <laughs> Cracks me the fuck up. But yeah, there are like two times maybe <laughs> where it's on purpose in this film. Maybe. Yeah, I'd say, like, it's most clearly on purpose when they get to America, weirdly. Which is, like, I... Bleh. This is one of those movies that, like, the plot is right there in the title. And I feel like everybody knows the plot. See, I actually didn't know about the... Like, I knew that they went around the world in 80 days and it was kind of like a, you know, oh, you can't do that. You, oh, yeah, you bet? Well, we'll put put your money where your mouth is. But, like, that was the extent of what I knew. Before going into this. In your defense, there's not a lot more to it. <laughs> the sort of extended parts of it are, one, it's a bet. It's a wager with a bunch of, like, crusty men in a gentleman's club. And two, the, like, specifics of Fogg and Passepartout. Fogg is the, like, upper-class English gentleman going on it who's, like, very the sort of, I think, more in the book and in other versions of this that I've seen, a parody of it than this movie plays him as, but a parody of, of a, like, hyper-competent Victorian Englishman. 
Always prepared for anything completely unflappable. He's almost like the Sherlock trope of he's so much smarter than everyone else that he prepares for eventualities that no one would actually think of. Also, there is his valet. Val- eh. He says valet a lot, which I do like, but his valet, Passepartout, who is, again, in other things, played very differently. For instance, in the book, he's very clearly French. Whereas in this, I don't know what the hell they're playing him as. An alien? Like, I don't, like... (laughs) I... Yeah, I... hmm. He does speak Spanish, and the actor who's playing him is Mexican, but I don't know that he's intended to be read as Mexican? It's not like he speaks Spanish through the whole movie. When they go to Spain, he speaks Spanish, is what I mean. Sorry. For people who haven't seen this movie, he's not just, like, speaking Spanish through the whole film. And also, when they go to Spain, he does not seem particularly familiar with it. Right. So I assumed that he was supposed to be Mexican because the actor is Mexican. But also, like, how did he end up... I mean, not... Yeah. Alien is actually more... uh, As in, like, extraterrestrial. Not as in, like, immigrant. Yeah. Um, yeah, anyway, they travel east around the entire world doing this, like, kind of a shitty travel log thing, uh, in various places. In India, long, weary sigh, they save the extremely Indian Shirley MacLaine as an Indian princess, um, from being burned alive, and she becomes the romantic interest which is all cool and legal because she was educated in England, so she's not a savage. Or, I guess, Indian? Question mark? Because, like, the Hayes Code wasn't cool with this literally the last year of movies. Well, they were cool with it in the last year of movies because, like in this, you're allowed to diegetically have interracial marriage, but you cannot, in the real world, have the two people who are romantically involved be of two different races. Yeah, 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 I guess that's true. Though I felt like in Love is a Many Splendored Thing, it was like, uh, well, let us let us punish you for this. And in this, it's like, no, it's totally fine and no one has a problem with it. And there's like, I mean, other than the fact that she inadvertently brings about the end of the British Empire for totally unrelated reasons. Yeah. It's treated pretty cool. <laughs> In a way that I guess we just haven't seen before, but because it's so ludicrous and comic book and I mean, comic book actually is insulting to comic books, cartoonish, that it doesn't really hit as like, oh, that was a, oh, look at how progressive this is. Yeah. I don't even think the movie thinks it's that way. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, they have a ton of misadventures, many of them based around the fact that this, like, British police inspector thinks Fogg stole a bunch of money from the Bank of England, which I guess he didn't, but honestly, it really seems like he did for basically the whole movie. Yeah, I act- I was totally on board. I was like, okay, so obviously he robbed the bank, but he wants to do this bet so that when he gets caught, he can pay the bank back and still have money because like the person stole 50,000 pounds and with the people who are betting on this he's gonna make like a hundred thousand or something yeah and then that wasn't actually what happened at all it was just that he misidentified him and some other dude robbed the bank yeah who you never see and who just confesses to it off screen 
he almost loses the bet, but then he forgot about the international dateline. So he actually has one more day than he thought he did uh, and makes it just in time. And Shirley MacLaine marries him. And then the movie ends arguing that it is a farce when it is not by having a woman coming into this gentleman's club just cause infinite chaos and then end of film. Not infinite chaos, specifically the end of the British Empire. That's fair. If a woman ever walks into this club, it spells the end of the British Empire. Yeah. And then I guess it did. Yeah. (laughs) Which good. (laughs) Two weird things about this, one of which is why it won Best Picture, very clearly. The one that's why it won Best Picture is this movie has 40 plus cameos of really famous actors in it. Yes. This is a genuine, everyone in Hollywood was fucking in this movie. Therefore, your best friend was in Around the World in 80 Days. You better fucking vote for it. Yep. Noel Coward, John Gielgud, fucking Frank Sinatra. Marlena Dietrich. They're all in it for like three seconds, just long enough to be distracting. Right. Right. Peter Lorre, Buster Keaton. It's not just a who's who of who was big in Hollywood in the 50s. It's like, if they were still alive, (laughs) they were in this movie. (laughs) Yeah. Charles Boyer, which like, where has he been for a while? The weird thing is they all pop up just long enough for you to go like, well, Peter Lorre's in this movie. That's probably important. Nope. He's in exactly one scene where he just explains what's going on to Passport 2 and then just fucking disappears. And it isn't even like a I'm Peter Lorre-y part. It's just this guy that wakes up Passport 2 and says, you're on a boat. Yep. And that's the whole thing. That's reason one. What's reason two that's weird about it? Or thing two that's weird about it? Well, it's... Th- th- Thing, too, that's weird about it is that there's this 10-minute prologue by Edward R. Murrow that's, like, basically the movie going, Now, I know we can go around the world in a lot shorter than 80 days now, but I swear to you this is interesting. And I'm going to show you a trip to the moon. (laughs) The George Melier film to argue that this film is good, too. It plays as much as an apology (laughs) as a prologue. It really does, now that I think about it. (laughs) And it's also like showing a trip to the moon is such a bizarre choice. Because within the context of this film, which comes out in 1956, I, I never remember how the Oscars work. It's the 56 Oscars or for the 56 movies, right? Yeah. Even though they happen in 57. Okay. So this movie comes out in 1956. We don't actually go to the moon as a species, like, never mind as just, you know, people in the U.S., until more than 10 years later. So, like, why is Trip to the Moon the, like, well, yes, I mean, but see, this is what they used to think a Trip to the Moon would be like, but now we know that we still haven't done this. Yeah. (laughs) I don't understand why that's the comparison. I don't either. Like, the whole thing becomes, like, since the dawn of time, mankind has been obsessed with exploration and speed. And it's like, okay, I guess. But also, like, then you get into the movie, and you're not fucking exploring anything, and you're not going particularly quickly. Like, in the sense of, like, they're 
in the universe of this film, like I understand that historically in like the mid 19th century, like it took a while to get around. So 80 days is actually a pretty tight schedule. But in the movie, it seems like they could have done it at about 20 if it weren't for all these like bullshit misadventures they keep going on. Well, yes, but of course, that's what Fogg, you know, says is that he can do 80 because he'll account for all of the possible issues that they will run into but what's really funny to me is like i guess i'd always sort of thought of this as like the greatest travelogue um and again i hadn't seen it so that that is on me for assuming that that's what it is uh and in a strange way it kind of is because my god this sounds like the most hellish vacation anyone has ever presented because you only are on some form of transportation Almost the entire time. It's like, we're on a train, now we're in a hotel, go to sleep, get on a boat. Or now we're in a hotel, oh, boat's leaving four hours early so we don't even get to stay in the hotel? Go to the boat. It is everything that is fucking terrible about traveling and none of the, none of the exploration. All of the exploration was already done by other people who created these, like, railways or these shipping lane routes or whatever there's no actual exploration except arguably by accident and even then it's just how do we get from point a to point b not oh well since we're in point a let's take a look around (laughs) yeah like i I totally agree like i think the biggest problem with this movie besides the racism (laughs) is that it cannot decide if it's a travel log or if it's an adventure movie because it doesn't it keeps all of the adventure parts just seem like these bullshit, like, interruptions. And then all of the travelogy parts feel like you're just waiting to get on another train. All of the adventure parts are like, okay, this is basically glorified changing a flat tire. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's always racist. That's the other thing, too, is like, what if changing a flat tire could be racist somehow? Yeah. <laughs> because, like, it's the first one that they run into, the one in India, that's, like, actually interrupting their travel schedule. Well, there's the bullfight they have to do, but that's... Yeah, which I guess, like, that's the one that isn't racist. It's not an accurate bullfight at all, but it is it is arguably not racist. Yeah. In India, they have to deal with a bunch of cannibalistic natives that are going to... Well, they talk about cannibals, but I guess you don't know for sure that the natives that are going to set Shirley MacLaine on fire are cannibals. Right, so she's supposed to be doing sati because her husband, who she has married, I guess, at a distance? Or when she was seven and then was sent to England to study and then came back and he was dead? It wasn't really clear. Yeah. But we do know that, you know, she's never... She's a virgin, in case you were worried. (laughs) Yeah. She's meant to do sati because other people want her to, but she's, you know, as they say, like drugged out of her mind on opium or whatever. And the whole ritual is like just ludicrously cartoonish and has no real world bearing at all. This is like not at all what happens in anything. Uh, And then they just like completely desecrate what is like, I mean... Whatever your feelings are on Sati, I know that there are a lot of of 
feminists both in India and in the Western world who feel like it is a hugely problematic thing to literally put a to to let a living person and always a woman burn themselves to death when their spouse dies. Um, but whatever your feelings on it, like the way that this movie desecrates Hinduism writ large as an entire religion <laughs> is not okay. <laughs> yeah. And just makes a total mockery of what is a pretty solemn and pretty intense experience. Because they've like tied her, whatever. Um, Like they're forcing her to do it. It's this whole shitty thing. Anyway, she falls instantly in love with Fog after she's rescued from that. Even though in what potentially could be a really funny thing about this movie, Passport 2 actually fucking rescues her. Often is the reason why anyone gets rescued or saved, even if he's not the one who's like figured out the, oh, well, I accounted for there being a problem, so I scheduled extra time. Yeah. But the way that he saves her is that he wraps himself in a shroud and then pretends to be her dead husband rising from the dead on the bower with her, which like, makes all of the those silly superstitious natives freak out and run away and i'm like oh my god i hate this yeah it sucks but also like in a better movie in a in an updated version of this they would find a way to do something that was funny and slapsticky and didn't like denigrate an entire religion (laughs) yeah and like that's the thing so i I kept comparing this to a very, very good video game called 80 Days that is also based around Around the World in 80 Days Hmm. and fixes shit tons of problems with this. One is you, when you play the game, are playing as Passport 2 and not as Fog. Because another thing about Passport 2, even in this movie, is he's the one making all the fucking travel arrangements. Like, he buys the tickets. Yes. He is the one determining the next location. Fog just does some, like, risk analysis. <laughs> That's literally the entirety, and and is contributing the money, but... Yeah. So in the game, at each sort of new location, you buy tickets to the next location, and then there are stories based on, like, which route you're taking when, and sort of randomized events that can happen as you take various routes. But the other sort of interesting thing that it does, that this movie really feels like it desperately wants to do, is the further you get from England, the more weird and steampunky that world gets. Like, there is a whole path where Fogg just basically gives up on going around the world in 80 days and becomes obsessed with a journey to be the first man to the North Pole. (laughs) That is a very different, that is a very different goal now. Right, but it becomes this sort of rumination on, like, who is this weirdo that just takes elaborate bets (laughs) about going to weird parts of the planet? And, like, it becomes about how Fog is just, like, this weird obsessive, which he is, um, and actually explores that. But there's also, like, a gigantic, like, constantly running, like, it seems like the train from Snowpiercer train through Russia. That does not exist in the real world, but exists in 80 days. Um, There's way more Zeppelin paths. Atlantis exists. And the more that whenever this stuff comes up, Fogg always insists he already knew about it in this way where you're like, it feels like you're just saying that about everything, my man. (laughs) That like, (laughs) it feels like this is the most absurd, like no one was aware this was a thing. Um... (laughs) 
but he just insists like, yes, of course, we all know about the Zeppelin trip that takes you to Atlantis. <laughs> Passepartout, why are you making such a big thing about this? And so like there is a sense of adventure to it, unlike with this, where the adventure is always like those savage natives, they make it so hard to go around the world. It is, hey, going around the world means exposing yourself to things you did not know about and did not understand. Yeah, it definitely does feel in every place that they go, like, Fog has been there before and is already bored with it. Yeah, and, like, playing that up as kind of a pose can be funny. And playing up that, like, Fog has an itinerary, Passepartout has to fucking do everything, (laughs) is also funny. Yeah, I would absolutely play that game. Well, I wouldn't because I don't play video games, but I would watch someone play that video game, which is the way that I play video games. It's on like iOS and it's like largely narrative based. Like it's largely reading. Oh, okay. Yeah, I can do that. I can play a phone game. Yeah, it is a good time. I would really recommend it. But like I, I, but it was kind of a bummer to have played it before watching this to go like, God, 80 Days is so much better than everything about this movie. It also reminded me of, uh, it's been a minute since I talked about any of them because it was really the like depths of the first year of the pandemic when I watched all the Ken Burns documentaries. But it reminded me of uh, another thing that's way better than this, which is a Ken Burns documentary called Horatio's Drive that is about the first person to ever drive across the United States in an automobile. Mm. And, like, gets at what this movie wants to be about in terms of, like, the technological limits at the time and, like, what it means to be the first person traveling by this mode of transport or at this speed. But this movie doesn't kind of want to go into that level of detail about any of this stuff because it kind of doesn't have the strength of its convictions. So it's just like, yeah, they get on a train. The train just stops. There's no train anymore. Instead of like one of the things they talk about over and over again in Horatio's Drive is the main problem is all of the the cars at the time were meant to go on relatively paved roads because shock absorbers like were barely a thing. And so mainly what happens is the car keeps fucking breaking and he has to keep ordering replacement parts by train. So he's basically just driving along train tracks next to train tracks through these towns waiting for like his his replacement parts for his car to show up. And that weirdly ends up making him this press sensation because the train keeps going like there's this weirdo two towns over that we're delivering car parts to for the fourth time. (laughs) And so everybody in these towns starts like organizing parades and waiting for this guy to drive through town. And it's like the biggest thing that happens for them all year. And you get like bits and pieces of stuff like that in this movie, but simultaneously Fogg is the most famous person alive and nobody knows who the hell he is. And they don't really explore like why he becomes famous or like what it is about this trip that's capturing people's imagination. It is just like to set the stakes of this thing. Which is boring because the movie's called around the world in 80 days, so you're pretty confident he's going to go around the world in 80 days. Yeah, there there is a bit of, I mean, there's the little twist at the end, you know, but even then you're like, well, that surely this is going to shake out. <laughs> yeah. And actually the fact that he is quite famous or seems to be at least of 
uh, high interest, we'll say, in London high society, even before this whole bet that then ends up essentially establishing almost an entire stock market just about his trip. Yeah. Is never explored. It's like, he's such a mystery. And I'm like, what about him is mysterious? Well, nobody knows anything about him. Okay, well then how did he become a member of this incredibly exclusive club if no one knows anything about him? That doesn't track at all. How is he a person that would be suspected of both being a member of this incredibly exclusive club and being a bank robber? (laughs) Yeah, and like, it is so strange because it's this, like, clearly... That is there to set up the bank robbery thing, right? Because, like, if anybody knew him to vouch for him, they'd go, like, well, you're not a bank robber. So it's there to be suspicious. But instead, it's just, like, this bizarre thing where you're like, well, that's impossible. Like, how does no one on Earth know anything about this guy? And then he's, like, literally front page news. The Queen is reading about him. And so, like, nobody asks any fucking follow-up questions? Like... Yeah. Uh, apparently, and I haven't watched it yet, though I, I did download it after watching the movie, there is a very recent adaptation. It was actually made by German television, but it, you know, stars mostly, mostly UK actors with David Tennant as Fogg that actually addresses a lot of these questions. Um, like, who the fuck is this guy? Why does anyone care about him? How did he end up doing this? And I think, well, I I don't know. Again, I haven't seen it. But I think largely uh, manages to do the route without all of the racist shit at each of the stops. Yeah. So I am interested to watch it. I was going to at least watch the first couple of episodes before we recorded, but it was... There was just no fucking way I was going to put it into my week. But I I mean, one thing I will say is that watching this film after two years of not being able to travel or not feeling comfortable traveling, after having done a lot of international travel and like that was pretty much all I ever spent money on <laughs> um, before the pandemic. Yeah. Even while there were all of these really horrible racist depictions of the people of various places the big establishing shots of which there are many and i will say that that's probably one of the things that could be cut down in this film because it does not need to be anywhere near this long but at the same time they're actually my favorite part of the movie (laughs) because it's like oh my gosh where are we now oh it's so beautiful look at the river in bangkok or look at the harbor in hong kong and it made me miss traveling a whole lot i think it's also why i ended up resenting the movie for not actually showing me the like cultural experience of being in any of these places except as like some kind of caricature or sometimes like so ridiculous as to just be divorced from reality like the bullfight is a caricature and i'm frankly thankful that they didn't show an actual bullfight because it's very very gory and i'm not cool with it like I've seen videos and they make me very uncomfortable because, you know, they kill a bull in front of you uh, and slowly with a lot of different sharp thingies. Yeah. So that didn't bother me so much. But like the bit in India was really annoying. The part where they come to the U.S. and there's like the most just 
garbage depiction of Native Americans <laughs> with all of the, you know, like, Halloween costume feathered headdress shit you would expect and the yelling was it just sucked <laughs> yeah it just sucked <laughs> i don't think it is to this film's credit that like the most engaging parts of it are just sticking a camera to the side of a train and filming for like an hour or like a crane shot or some sort of like i, I mean did they do helicopter shots at this point because there was some stuff where i was like surely they had to have done this from a plane or a helicopter i don't know Maybe. Because those shots were totally beautiful, but they were also like, did they just call up National Geographic? <laughs> it, like, it kind of feels like that, and it kind of feels like that's, like, at on the one hand, I think if you cut out all of the, like, extended establishing shots, shots of them, like, traveling by train, shots of boats going through water, and the fucking, how dare this movie have an intermission intermission. Um, I think this movie would be under two hours. <laughs> hey, man, I'm all I'm I'm totally here for if you're going to make it that long, have the intermission. See, to me, it was because there were all the fucking shots like from the train. Like I got up multiple times to just like go to another room for like five minutes and came back and went, huh, nothing happened. We're still just looking outside of out of a train in India. Like and <laughs> that just happened and so when we got to the intermission it was like don't make yourself fucking seem important enough to have an intermission you need an editor not an intermission that is fair yeah you need an editor not an intermission oh man stick that shit on a (laughs) t-shirt tight 90 or bust motherfuckers I mean, it felt, it's weird after Giant, where I was like, this movie probably shouldn't be three plus hours long, but like, it's tough to say exactly what to cut. And then to come back to this movie and be like, I can tell you what to fucking cut. There's a straight hour of this movie that does not need to be here. Yeah. 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 And it's not even like it's like to make room for all the cameos, because if you cut them out, this movie would probably be like 45 minutes. Yeah, I mean, the cameos are so short that, no, it's definitely not like, oh, well, how do we just shove everybody in? I mean, some of them are like, you know, Marlena Dietrich playing a saloon hostess. She has one line or two lines, maybe. Yeah. That's not it at all. It's definitely like, why are we watching them be on a train? Yeah. Again. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, we know what a train looks like and we know what these people look like. We don't need 10 minutes of like, oh, look at them riding along on a train. This uh, this movie would make a great fifteen minute Disney World ride. <laughs> it totally would. It would also make a great series of like. I'm fascinated to watch this TV show. I read a bad review of it, and I was like, "Oh, I guess I don't want to watch it." But looking at it now, it was also uh, created by the Life on Mars guy. So I'm back into it again because that's uh, one of the best BBC shows in history. Um, that show fucking ruled. But I'm interested to watch this story in smaller intervals because it's very episodic. Yeah. And this movie sort of feels like you would want to watch this in like little 10, like 
15-minute shorts over the course of whatever. And then every time there's just like a... And then at the end, Frank Sinatra turns around and wakes to the camera and you go, oh, that was Frank Sinatra, that's cute. Instead of fucking Frank Sinatra, I don't have time for your shit. There's still two hours of this movie or something. I'm so tired. <laughs> like, I... But also... But also, Frank Sinatra don't have time for your shit because we definitely need to do a 15-minute montage of overhead establishing shots so that we know that now we are in the place that they told us we are on the way to. Yeah. <laughs> Ugh. Like, look, buddy, you could just you could just give me a shot of, like, the marketplace and go, and here we are in Egypt, and I'd get it. Like, it's cool. <laughs> Do I like the establishing shots? Sure, they're very pretty. Do they drag this movie down? Yeah, because the movie's supposed to be fast, right? That's the whole point. It's like, this is really, really fast for the time. And they're doing this in 80 days. And I'm like, that's weird, because we certainly have a whole lot of time to linger on stuff. That's what I'm saying about it seems like you could have done this in 20 days. This movie does not spend nearly enough time kind of... Which is another thing the game does really compellingly is go like, well, if you do this, it's arguably faster, but then you got to think about what you're connecting from from there. It doesn't have any of that element of like, there are trade-offs here. Why are we going this way rather than another way? Why are we using this form of transportation? It just seems like Fog has picked the correct form of transportation at all times, and everything would work out great if it weren't for this police detective that slowed them down by 40 plus days. <laughs> so there's no real, like, compelling sense of travel to it. There's no compelling sense of speed, like you say, because everything seems like you are just in an interruption yeah. all the time. And the interruptions resolve themselves within 10 minutes on screen, so, like, why would it take this long? Yeah. Yeah. Don't watch this movie? <laughs> yeah, for sure. At 10 minutes shorter than Giant, it easily felt twice as long. Yeah. Like, it is just a slog. Play 80 Days, watch the David Tennant TV series. I mean, read Maybe. The... I mean, we don't know. We Tell don't us know. if it's good. It's got to be better than this, honestly. Well, that's a kiss of death. It's probably better than this, because this isn't very good. <laughs> it's got to be better than this, then we watch it and we're like, oh my god, we are so sorry we said to watch this. Yeah. <sighs> uh... Yeah, not um not not great. Uh what what do we want to rate this? Like two? I was going to go three, but then I was yeah, going to make I'm, a I'm torn between those two if I'm being honest. I I was going to go three and then make a joke about how the YouTube channel I watched a lot during the pandemic that was just a guy with a GoPro wandering around Tokyo doing night walks is a four. If this movie is like everything good about this movie is actually more compelling if you just go to like a YouTube channel that like films out the front of subway trains and films the whole subway line. Yeah. Oh, there's a there's a guy that you can watch on YouTube who like goes into super creepy abandoned parts of the former soviet union and he's got one where he breaks into chernobyl 
And that's like a that's like a six. It's terrifying. It's one of the best horror movies I've ever watched. And like nothing happens, but it's so fucking scary. And that's still more stuff than like I'm arguing for literally just like a guy wandering around Shibuya. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, okay. That's a four. <laughs> Alright, okay. That's a f- Compared to this. I actually still think this is a two, and I haven't seen that, so, like, I could be wrong. (laughs) But, you know, like, I've watched people's Instagram stories that have been more compelling. I mean, it's it's because everything compelling about this is just the travel footage. Apparently, Stanley Tucci's doing some show about Italy for CNN right now. That sounds... Oh, I love that show. It's so good. That's, like, if you're just... If we're doing travel log... You got a lot of choices for that. And if you're doing adventure, you got a lot of choices for that too. And like, this movie is dog shit at the adventure part. And when it's good at the travelogue parts, it's good at that with literally no actors on screen. Like Right, with like zero contribution from writers, directors, (laughs) actors, anything. It's just like, oh, well, some cinematographer... Possibly a guy that, you know, works for National Geographic, took some very beautiful wide angle shots of various parts of the places where they go in this movie. Yeah. I, I See, actually, cut all of the story out of this and you got a tight 30 minute travel log. Yeah, or just like straight up do what this movie kind of occasionally threatens to do because they really make Passepartout into like a Charlie Chaplin figure. Down to the outfit. Like he's wearing the tramp's outfit. Yeah. Cut out all of the plot of this movie, do a bunch of travelogue shit, and then just make it even more thinly. They've like Passepartout has just gotten into some trouble in this new city. And it's like comic, but it's like a it's like a Three Stooges or a Charlie Chaplin esque comic set piece. It isn't about how the natives are getting restless or what the fuck ever. It's just like he accidentally knocks the leg out from a fruit stand, and that's five minutes. Like that would be more compelling, and like more of a sense of how travel actually works, of like the way these delays compound on themselves. Of oh fuck, this is my day now. Christ, what am I? Okay, I'm gonna try and make this better as fast as I can. Actually, I'm making it worse. Like that would just. Mm. Yeah, I'd watch that. <laughs> Charlie Chaplin's Around the World in Eighty Days is a great fucking movie that doesn't exist. Yeah, I'd watch the shit out of that. And, like, they go to Venice, and he has to fall in the canal, and, yeah, I mean, it was great. oh, I love it. There's so many obvious ways to make this, like, uh, funny and, like, riffs on cliches about travel in certain places. Because that's the other thing, too, that I actually really, that I do enjoy about things like this and about travel logs is where they go, okay, here's the super famous thing that you're probably actually never going to be able to visit but you know what it looks like and like let's walk around in it so you can have this vicarious experience you know and we don't get this i get the vicarious experience of being on a fucking train yeah (laughs) no offense to trains like i like traveling by train but it's still i don't want to watch someone else do it for 20 minutes (laughs) multiple times Absolutely. This is where the cameos become a problem because, like, there is this sense of, like, you keep waiting for 
any of the people they meet on the train to become important, but they're just a cameo. So they just sort of start all blending together. Like, the only people they meet on the trip that actually matter are Shirley MacLaine and the British detective. Mm. And then everybody else keeps going like, I matter! And then you go, by the third one, you're like, you're not going to fucking fool me again. Like, I don't need to give a shit about you at all. You're gone in three minutes. Uh, yeah. So don't watch this movie. Uh, it's, it's annoying. It's not even worth it for the, like, where's Waldo-ness of the cameos. Nope. So next week, speaking of overly long movies that probably aren't worth it, and I could be wrong, it could be fabulous, but we are watching The Ten Commandments, which is 400 years long. Yeah, I mean, you almost don't need to do the joke because it's very close to four hours long. Um, Yeah. Which it's... The one thing I will say that I recall about The Ten Commandments is it is the kind of movie you can watch in 15-minute chunks and probably should. That is really good to know because I feel like that's the only way I'm going to be able to fit it in this week. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, I, I guess I will do that then. It does have Vincent Price in it, which I don't know who he plays or anything at all about his character, but the thought of Vincent Price in the Ten Commandments just fitting anywhere in that story is hilarious to me. I mean, it is it is the prototypical 50s epic, right? Like, maybe that's the only thing we'll be able to say about it. But like, this is the one. That doesn't mean it's great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you don't love biblical epics uh, as a rule, so... But at least it's not Roman. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like, I, I don't think I'm going to love it or anything, but I do think I'm at least going to be able to go like, this is a watershed moment in film history. Whether or not it's any fucking good is another question. Which is, I think, really interesting because it is Cecil B. DeMille. Yeah. Who has had a very long career at this point. Like, this is maybe his last movie? Uh, I don't think quite. Um, but it's his last, like... Oh, no, it is his last one. It is his last one. Okay. Yeah, because they gave him the Oscar for... What was that last movie we watched? The Greatest Show on yeah, Earth. Yeah, which was like not very good because everybody was like, well, he's been around forever. We got to give it to him because like he's old and he's going to die and this is his last movie. And then he was like, fuck you, here's the Ten Commandments. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I guess he had the last laugh. Yeah, so tune in next week to find out if it is better than The Greatest Show on Earth. Which I I, I will say, I'm guessing it probably is. I, I can't imagine it isn't. But it is weird that he becomes, like, obsessed with Charlton Heston in his old age. Yeah, he's not a good actor. No. Cool. And until then... This is a really good iOS game. It's basically on any platform, actually. You can just, like, pick it up on Switch. It's great there. Uh, it's on Mac oh, cool. or PC, you know, just like wherever you want to grab 80 days, uh, do that. Um, this, uh, bye. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Well, gentlemen, here I am. I trust that I've not kept you waiting. Hello, Fog. Hello, Fog. Hello, Fog. Great Caesar's ghost. A woman in the club. Yeah.
I must ask you to leave these precincts at once. No woman has ever set foot in the club. Why not? Because that could spell the end of the British Empire. 